0: You have accessed Entry 895.nu2406, Certificate Number 14751, The Panorama of the Monumental Grandeur of the Mississippi Valley.
1: Uh, one of the th- things that I like about your house is that it has a a very wide ranging view of a of of an area of North
0: Seattle. One it, of the reasons you chose that location. It's true. We uh, it's a beautiful part of the world up here because you've got you've often got no matter which way you look here you've often got snow capped mountains mm-hmm. backing water,
1: water and then leafy trees and
0: pines. It's really nice. I was. Last week, we uh, went down to the Bay Area, went to Marin County, and tried to pick up you know a place with scenic views, and it was lovely. We had a great time, but we got home, and I, yesterday, I was just walking my dogs in Seattle, and I was like, you know what? This view of Puget Sound here is actually better than what I was paying for in, in Marin. It's yeah. a lovely part of the world, and I like, when we bought the house, I really was trying to find some place where I could look out and see... I kind of wanted the view we had as a kid. My parents bought this house up in Edmonds, north of town, that had then an amazing view, and now I think like a 180-degree view of the Olympics. Because they chopped down all the trees, or
1: why has the, why is the yes. view improved?
0: Yeah, since then, I think a lot of trees have come down in the 30 years since we lived there. Um, and, you know, I just loved that view. We were crazy about that view, but like six weeks after they closed on that house, my dad came home from work and said, hey, uh, I got an offer to go a job in korea oh so, so th- yeah we hardly ever we hardly got to enjoy the view uh but when we yeah when we bought this house in north seattle i was really kind of looking for mountains and water
1: uh, but the but you're facing the
0: opposite direction i'm facing west the cascades you'd think the cascades would be the big ticket attraction yeah but, and you can't see rainier from the deck but uh for some reason, I think—is it distance? Why do the Olympics seem to loom bigger on the horizon than the Cascades do from Seattle?
1: Because the sun hits them earlier in the day, right? The, the sun is hitting the face of the Olympics all day, whereas the Cascades—it's only sort of in the afternoon. That is
0: one problem that we we do not get we do not get sunset in our view. Whatever you can say about our view, which is very nice, the sun. We know we'll never set into it. And if it does, something's gone terribly wrong. (laughs) Yes. Because it's facing east. Been a -a flipperoo. And if I were a morning person, maybe I would just love being energized by getting up and enjoying the beautiful sunrise. But I have yet to see it willingly. Have you ever stood on your balcony with your camera
1: and done a, a full panorama? Tried, you know, started... All the way to the left, and, and worked your way all the way to the right, trying to capture the whole thing in one
0: frame. I'm very, uh, I, I I never know if I'm doing it right because you f- you know you have to drag it across, and the phone is r- is recognizing the movement of the imagery and yeah. stitching it together. And I always feel like oh something's going to happen, my hand's going to jiggle, and there's going to be a, a new mountain, right? Or
1: somebody's face is yeah, going to get
0: smeared. Oh yeah, or some car will appear twice. Uh, but I've played with it a little bit. It's fun. What do you do with them though? The aspect ratio is terrible for anything you would ever want to look at or display anywhere. So,
1: well, here's the thing. I do panoramic photos all the time. I have never, ever looked at one, (laughs) but I do it as a kind with the assumption that archivally there will be a day when I can go back kind of like my dad's slideshows. Uh, I'll have, I'll have some, uh, surround theater or, uh, I'll have a, a Cinerama in my own home and I can go back and look at all these pictures that I took of Grand Central Station.
0: You think the technology will finally catch up with panorama phones? Yeah. And we'll all have, will it be like that weird circular theater they used to have in Tomorrowland at Disneyland where they would project the Grand Canyon all around you?
1: Well, that's actually what our show is about. But what? Yeah. Um, it's about Tomorrowland? It's not about Tomorrowland, but it's about that technology.
0: But, I just want to say, I don't think you'll ever look at those pictures. Well, that's the problem, right? I mean, I don't want to do the
1: thing where I take, where I try to capture an entire scene by taking multiple pictures across the across the field, and then eventually, I don't know, stitching them together.
0: Well, that was the '80s or '90s version of that, is you would you would print the you would print different prints and then kind of put them together on your bulletin board. It's so weird, yeah. That and that's cute. I mean, that's
1: kind of uh, that's that's very. I remember, yeah, right. That was something that. That fancy girls with bob haircuts had in the in the entryway of their dorm room.
0: Because they didn't have, uh, you know, Pinterest boards yet or whatever.
1: I bought a big coffee table book right at the wrong time because it was like early 2000s, a huge coffee table book of aerial photographs of New York City. And it was all stuff that had been digitally spliced together and you can... Absolutely see instances where buildings are, if the perspective is screwed up and they're duplicated or smashed together. The
0: angle's not quite right.
1: And it was only a couple of years later where they had figured out how to do it and stitched it together. But, you know, I have this giant coffee table book. I'm not going to throw it away.
0: I mean, there's no reason to throw stuff away, especially nowadays that it's not sitting under a bed even. It's, It's just out in the cloud. But I remember when my son was born when well, my wife was in the hospital giving birth to to Dylan, our first kid. her mom was just uh, beyond excited and did a panorama
1: of the scene
0: the that's scene? one you're never going to look at again. <laughs> well, she was so she 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 really wanted in and she did not she was not in the delivery room at I think Mindy's request, but she was just going bananas out in the waiting room. she ended up just taking a million pictures of every door. She could see. And I said, uh, Myrna, why are you why are you taking pictures of the door to the waiting room and the door to the delivery room? And she was like, you're going to want those someday. <laughs> and I always think about that because it's been 18 years. <laughs> Still haven't and wanted them? To this day, I have not wanted any, much less 10, pictures <laughs> of the door of the delivery room where Dylan was born.
1: Uh, it's funny to think of a time before – uh, we were able to look at re- representations, photographic representations, or or um, any kind of representation of a wide
0: aspect
1: of a of a scene within the within painting.
0: You could look through a little a little window. You could look
1: through a little window, <laughs> right? You could look through. You could have a a, a pin box camera, but um, first of all, you could only get as high as the highest hill, or um, this is before the
0: Eiffel Tower, right? You could
1: stand up on the pyramids
0: or a box, if but you're, if you're in the Netherlands,
1: um, perspective had been worked out a long time prior. Um, but perspective started to get fuzzy in painting when you tried to uh, portray a wide scene. If you wanted to do a uh, like a, a perspectival picture of all of London you started to run into trouble. Yes. Because if you wanted to capture every aspect of London, you had to kind of go, you know, you had to go over here and, and paint Hyde Park and then over here and paint You can only Saint look Paul's. down
0: one axis in, right. your, in your single point perspective. So, the, the, you know, imagine the road you're directly ahead of. That will be heading away from you and you can see things on both sides of it. But as you get to the edge of a progressively wider canvas... You're going to have roads that are effectively, uh, you know, at really, really skew angles that don't let you see down them.
1: Right, and in particular, a, a thing like that where you want you want to capture all the monuments you want to you want to give a full sense of the scope of a battlefield or of a, um, you know, if you're painting Gettysburg, you're not just going to paint a, a uh, an excerpt. Right. You want and and things are happening across time, and you want to kind of capture every aspect of a two day battle. Um, you you encountered a lot of trouble, at, or we as viewers, um, we accepted a lot of distortion in the and th- I'm talking about in the in the 18th century where we suddenly needed. We suddenly felt like it wasn't enough just to kind of paint a far off landscape. We we had urban environments. Now we had a sense of the of a of a grander scope that we
0: wanted to represent, and the American landscape a little different than even the the cliffs and Alps that European painters were painting.
1: An incredible. There were many many incredible vistas here, but it was kind of in part related to. Related to the Enlightenment and the sense of
0: everything's related to the Enlightenment to you,
1: right? It really is. But a sense of the epic, um, a sense that you would want to—I mean, the uh, the the Romantic era, era, sort of post Enlightenment. It, it really, a, a major component of it was the emphasis on the grandeur of nature and the and kind of the the. Not just an epic sense, but but the sublimity of it, you know the 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 ineffable the kind of um being able to appreciate nature not as a rational thinker but as an emotional creature uh and that that was that that was a, a new thought technology
0: and how did art do that? Were there super wide cinemascope like canvases? I feel like I've seen like canalettos of Venice that are really. Kind of the IMAX of its time, big and wide and eye popping that way.
1: But in a but in but with a perspectival problem. Yes, um, where it really you, you can looks, duplicate
0: one person looking in one angle, right? And that may or may you know you can get St. Mark's Square, but you can't get the whole city.
1: Yeah, and it was and those were often not that wide. Actually, you know the the in order to make a really wide canvas. Uh, You'd have the to paint on toilet paper. Yeah, the aspect ratio would have to be crazy. You know, a, a lot of those were apprehendable in one glance. You could stand and look. They were they were thin and wide, and you could stand with one uh, with one perspective on a wide painting, but not really. Uh, we hadn't yet worked out the the capacity to. And it, it's it's. It's interesting to think of the 18th century as being a time when painting still had perspective to work out. Uh, yeah, just the math of it. Just the math of it. And, and uh, after centuries and centuries of people painting vignettes, uh, it wasn't yet clear how to do three-point perspective. I mean, three-point perspective, yes, but like seven-point perspective?
0: Well, like the width is not actually... I mean, the the human field of vision is not in cinemascope, right? Like, no. like I'm holding just a piece of letter sized paper here, and it seems like it's about what I can see. You know, it's it's not quite a square, like because I have you're pretty close to because I have two eyes. Is is there a mathematical approximation of what the human field of vision is?
1: Yeah, it's about uh, it's about 150 degrees human field of vision
0: but, but how does that but what's the ratio of that to the height of it is what i'm saying you know like like is, is a square the most this comes up in movie aspect ratios you know like fritz lang said he never wanted to shoot in cinemascope because it was it was just too wide he said it was yeah, only you good,
1: have to look from side to side it was
0: only good for snakes and funerals you know it's <laughs> it, it's not actually what the eye sees or the or, you know a common sense layout for most of the subjects you'd want to shoot
1: well, and it's related to binocular vision. It's related to right. the fact that we have two eyes. I mean, and if I had
0: one eye, it's a sphere, so it would be a cute it would be a square, right. right? The fact that I have two eyes, I assume, makes it a little more of a rectangle. And in cinemascope,
1: you, you do have a, a problem where your periphery is only really visible to one eye. As it as it skews around to this side of your head, you can't see past your nose.
0: Well, and there's a lens problem in movies where stuff gets distorted at the edges because to see that wide, you actually do have to have this kind of weird. Curvature and people at the edges of the frame look like they have the mumps or something because they've been <laughs> they've been curved and fisheye. There was
1: not in the late 18th century a sense of panorama. The word didn't exist, um, and the word was an invention of uh, a man by the name of Robert Barker. The word panorama was invented by Bob Barker? Bob Barker. Span new to your pets. Like an Irishman who emigrated to Scotland. And at a certain point... Um, That's crazy that there was no such thing as a panorama. There wasn't any sense of it. Uh, most paintings of landscapes were painted from a bird's eye view. So the painter imagined the landscape sort of uh, up high enough that you could see into the landscape. But of course, bird's eye view wasn't wasn't actually possible. So it was always painted from life, but but with
0: they the They didn't have drones. They didn't have drones. They had to imagine, okay, I want to be able to see this horse and this river and this castle on the hill. They didn't have drones and they didn't yet have
1: balloons. Ah so no, no one had seen that angle. No one had seen that angle. It was it was um it was an on high that was wasn't so on high that you uh, that you couldn't imagine it, right? But you could. You're looking down at the tops of buildings in a way that you wouldn't be able to from almost any perspective, looking onto a scene. Um, and so Bob Barker in in 1787, um, who w- and he was a successful painter in his day. You know, sort of a Landscape artist or a, a and portraitist, he had this flash of um, inspiration that he was going to paint a a, a canvas that was a full three hundred and sixty degrees, a painting Whoa. all the way around of a of a landscape,
0: but not also overhead. Now, he's not inside a sphere, <laughs> not overhead, but but quite tall. Okay, in order to
1: create this. Um, this land, you know, the, the effect of a landscape, but the, his innovation and his patent, because he did get this idea patented. Um, his idea was that the painting would be exhibited in a purpose built structure, uh, uh, which he called the rotunda. And it was a, it was an enormous building. This is all, this is all in his vision, uh, uh-huh an enormous building that would have the 360 degree painting in it. And then the viewers would be restricted to a certain kind of, uh, like a platform in the middle of the building. The interior of the building would be dark. The painting would be lit with skylights. The painting would be lit. And you could stand in the center. And because your, you know, your horizon was restricted, it would have the... The verisimilitude of nature, depending on how good the painting was, of course. Right. And so, as a proof of concept, he painted a, a view of Edinburgh, and he built a structure in his backyard and charged a shilling to come in and check out this, uh, this like new way of seeing.
0: He just somehow hung it up around his yard. Well, yeah,
1: he built a, a building that would block out the light and then hung oh, this. Oh, okay. indoors. He, yeah, hung this painting in 360 degrees. And he would kind of, um, you know, part of the immersive effect of it was that you would sort of walk into a dark chamber, get acclimated to, uh, to darkness, and then walk into the experience of the painting.
0: He's invented movies without the movie. He's invented movies,
1: and the effect on people of, of the time was overwhelming. Isn't that crazy? People were blown away by the experience of being effectively like up on a tower and able to look and ab- able to see all around you a-, a place that you're not.
0: It's the aerial view. You think more than anything, like nobody's ever nobody's ever been higher than a church tower. Then,
1: well, or but but also people hadn't traveled afar. Yeah. Um, the experience of being able to see a place and have it feel real without actually being there, uh, it was like being on a,
0: a spaceship. And the technology is still terrible. It's just a bunch of paintings of Edinburgh. So there's just – he's addressing something deep in the human mind that loves, what, just the sense of being – transported, I guess. Or? I mean, it's
1: the the exact effect of putting on a virtual reality headset yes, now,
0: except that's actually good tech. Sort of. Well, oh, I'm just saying this guy's getting most of the way there with a bunch of paintings of Edinburgh. Right. Like, so it's, it's not the tech that is the transporting thing about, about virtual reality.
1: Part of the tech was being able to paint the perspective of someone who's standing in the center and looking all around. So, it you know it wasn't enough to just stand in one place and paint your vision of a of Edinburgh there
0: must be a couple i'm trying to think how it works there must be some single point perspectives at the horizon and it's curving between them so sometimes you're looking right down the lens and sometimes it's a little bit curved and then you get back to another angle right and and in order to i mean there was a, later on in
1: the in the mid 1800s um there was a further invention of a kind of Basically, like a, a a sort a set of what would you describe it as L- lenses, and uh, that could account for um, the change in perspective, and then actually uh, like a like a projector that would project these scenes onto canvases, allowing the painters to paint without stitching together various perspectives. Huh. Uh, You know, at first there were these problems that it, but, you know, it became part of the craftsmanship that you would blur those perspectival changes and you could do it, you know, because there was a lot behind a tree, do it behind a tree. And, and as the, as the, uh, experience kind of matured, um, there started to be, uh, depth of field, like they would put little shadows of trees kind of down, on on the artificial horizon, they could put things closer and further away from the viewer to give that sense of depth, uh, and you use those things also to kind of sh- yeah like camouflage them. But the experience of uh, or the the success of Robert Barker's backyard panor- panorama, and he coined the word out of two Greek, um, you know two two Greek Greek sub
0: pan means all word. right
1: pan means all, and then. Horama means view. Ah. So you can
0: finally see it all. All
1: view. Uh the success of it so kind of uh like energized the 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 world of London that a purpose built rotunda was built in Leicester Square in downtown London, an enormous structure built explicitly to show the the paintings of robert barker as spectacle and it opened to rave reviews he was charging 3 shillings a person yeah, it's got to be a money maker they're just cranking out money and the the experience of being in the structure you would go in you would climb a stair you would be completely in the dark you know all this kind of uh all these pre experiences that are meant to to like disorient you mm-hmm. and then stepping out of the middle staircase into a room where the where the uh, panorama was you know you were b- still in the dark, basically, and the panorama was illuminated by natural light, and it was so overwhelming that that it was very common for people to be sick to their stomach <laughs> because <laughs> they you know it was um wow, it was like. It was like showing a cat a mirror or taking a child up in an airplane. I remember the first time I took my daughter in a small plane. It was a, it was a Kenmore air float plane leaving from Lake union. And she was what? Three and a half. And we're looking out the window and it's all apprehendable to her, right? We're in a boat and see the floats. These are the boat. And then there's the propeller, there's the pilot. And she's looking out the window avidly and the, plane starts along the water and it's all very clear what's happening. How old was she? Three and a half, mm-hmm. four. And she's looking out the window and then the plane lifts off the water and she's like, wow, this is incredibly, you know, really fascinating. But as the plane went above treetop level and we flew out over over your neighborhood, right? We flew out over Green Lake and then all points beyond. I watched her as she turned away from the window and wanted very much not to look out, wanted very much to look at me. And during that period between treetop level and 3,000 feet, she wanted nothing to do with that view because it was,
0: it was completely confusing. Like when it did it, did it come back once it was kind of a,
1: yeah. Once it was kind of
0: a flat painting of the land below.
1: Once, once you were up above, uh, above 3,000 feet, she could look out the window again and it, and it, And it very much was a a flat painting, and she was interested again until we started to come in for a landing. And right in that period where you could make out what things were, but we were at a very unnatural height, she looked away again and didn't want anything to do I think that that.
0: was the appeal of drone photography is that even now with our aviation tech, you never saw – you either saw the earth from above, like aerial photogrammetry or, you know, those kind of – pictures that we've all seen the earth from space and you know, here's the rivers and here's the grand Canyon or you see it at ground level, but there's this kind of space, I don't know, like 500 feet up or something. that you, you know, couldn't possibly be, especially no. not stationary. Yeah. And not in a neighborhood, you know, maybe from a skyscraper observation deck, but you wouldn't see trees and rooftops and stuff. And if so, only very briefly. Yeah.
1: This was an experience that was, uh, that was happening, contemporaneously, because this was also the dawn of balloon flight. Um, The first balloon, the first manned balloon flight was only five years before Robert Barker's panorama.
0: So photos were coming down?
1: Well, there weren't photos. Oh, that's true. Nobody's painting up there. What was happening was people who flew in balloons were asked to describe the experience, and they could not. (laughs) There were not words to describe it.
0: And all, no, no one had ever seen the top of anything.
1: <laughs> no, and you read the accounts of it, and there's all this, uh, you know, people are saying it flattened out, it looks like a map, it looks like uh, ants, it looks, you know, uh, uh, like a model, but there were so few people that had been up in a balloon. It was a very, you know, it was a, it was a completely rare uh, experience for for several decades after the dawn of balloon flight, it didn't become a popular, uh, and,
0: and, you well, know, to this day, what percentage of humanity has ever been in a balloon?
1: There, there was a while where, where, <laughs> I mean, I, sadly, I've never been in a balloon. I've never been in a balloon. But that was, that was something that where you could get up to that, that strange middle altitude and be somewhat stationary and have the time to look down and survey, not just, you're not just looking down on st paul's cathedral but you can look all around yeah and that the the all aroundness was was somewhat overwhelming and it it was only after the panorama experience that happened in the rotunda after that because this was accessible to a lot of people it was accessible to to working people it was although it it was the rare kind of media experience that was so compelling that it was kind of classless like you could go as a working person but also the you know the hoi polloi went too Uh, later balloonists described their experience in terms
0: of the panorama they're like it's like being in a panorama (laughs) it's like that dude that painted Edinburgh (laughs) well I mean the fact that people would literally faint just by seeing a big painting really it makes me think we are doing A number on our brains with technology in general. You know, the idea that today we wouldn't bat an eye at that because we've, we've pushed the, we've pushed the hedonic treadmill or we've deadened our senses. I don't know what it is, but we've, we've physically changed our brains and our way of seeing and thinking just by now having seen everything, you know, seeing the wildest, strobiest, craziest stuff. Um, and we're probably kind of jaded by it. You know, I kind of wish I was somebody who could faint dead away at a really big painting of Edinburgh. But but you still have the you still
1: have the difficulty of fully grokking the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Right? You stand on the edge, you see it, but how can you know it? How can you truly get the scale of it? I find it frustrating, honestly,
0: because that, that happens r- pretty routinely to me in big natural landscapes where I feel like I'm just it's just so big and beautiful and I can't get all of it. Like I can't appreciate it as much as it deserves.
1: And that's the, that's the experience from the top of the empire state building. You look down on New York and you kind of want to spend all day just focusing on some part of Greenwich village that you know, but even that you can't get it. You can't fully absorb it, let alone to look out across the whole city in three dimensions um
0: i had kind of a jaded uh experience along these lines a couple weeks ago maybe this is the 21st century equivalent of the panorama um have you seen these kind of immersive van gogh things they're doing where it was it was a hit because it was in emily in paris on netflix uh -uh. they just kind of do they project like multimedia multimedia experiences on the walls of a big gallery all around you and you can walk and sit or uh And we were in San Francisco last week when they were showing it and it was, you know, it was pretty COVID safe because they were doing like low capacity. So we checked it out and I was honestly a little bit underwhelmed just because I feel like at this point I've seen, you can't go to a concert or anything without seeing weird shapes projected on stuff. Right. You can't, you can't watch.
1: It's the Grateful Dead influence.
0: exactly. Or, or just, you know, Adult Swim on MTV in the, or, uh. What was it called? What was the weird MTV animation thing? Anyway, the uh, and on Flux. They did Yeah, I was just watching you <laughs> on Flux. They didn't do any of the like kind of dizzying, like by by tilting the projection. They could really mess with somebody's inner ear, and so I think on purpose they didn't really do that. So it was all just kind of very sedate, beautiful Van Gogh brushstrokes, and I thought, Meh, Meh. Two and a quarter stars. You did, know? Did you ever go to the
1: Air and Space Museum in the seventies and take the miracle of flight?
0: Oh no! They had
1: some kind of immersive thing. Yeah, it was a it, it was a theater that it was a very high, a raked theater, kind of like an IMAX, and uh, and a panoramic shot, and you're kind of flying close to the ground, and then you go over a cliff, and you're flying out in in you know above some canyon, and the experience of it as a kid was just absolutely yeah. stomach dropping
0: i had that from the imax in the pacific science center and it was the exact same, it might have been the same might have been the same, the same movie, same movie i think there was also maybe a roller coaster yeah. over the top of the roller coaster part of it but yeah i would those were big screens and i just remember being like
1: Ugh! yeah yeah
0: the, and honestly
1: i have that experience just looking at an incredible painting if you if you get up close to a painting uh, like a pointillist painting or some uh some other kind of i mean any any painting that's astonishing and you get up close to it and realize that it's been constructed out of blobs. And I, I, that's also very hard for me to like fully take in and full, you know, you, you, you take a step back, you take a step forward. Part of the magic of the rotunda was that it kept people at a distance. I mean, it was, it was a whole, it, he was right to patent it as a technology because it worked, uh, because it was, it was so staged. You could, if you, if you moved any closer to the edge, it would lose the effect, right? If you, yeah, uh, if, if any other factor changed, they tried to do it at night and illuminate the canvas with, with lamplight. And it was like, no, doesn't work. It has to be daylight. It has to come from a certain angle. Ken, we haven't talked for a while about omnibus t-shirts and merch, a thing that I'm super proud of. And I know, you are too.
0: I'm really excited about these new June shirt designs. The uh, I just heard got an email from someone who missed the mail truck shirt. One of the great shirts. Back when we first offered it. Uh, and this person should be delighted to hear that both shirts in January are uh, mail truck options. They are gray t-shirts for those who didn't want black or white.
1: January? You said January.
0: Did I say January? Yeah. I meant June, which is January in the Southern Hemisphere. There you go. That's right. It's the, J- it's the, Janu- it's the June of January. It's the January of summer, yeah. I always say. So uh, both
1: June shirts, you're saying, are mail truck shirts.
0: Yes, and here's the deal. One of them is an old Grumman LLV driven by Mr. Zip himself, mm-hmm. gray with the Omnibus logo in blue. But then the sparkly new one is one of these new next generation fleet of mail trucks, with a cool, sexy twenty-first century Mister Zip driving, and the Omnibus logo in red, and they both look pretty great. How cool are they? I love them both, and um, they're in kind of fun mid-century modern style, uh, like something straight out of The Incredibles two, the, yeah. that movie that the kids love.
1: Yeah, they mm-hmm. they inv- uh, they invoke the the great history of mail trucks, and as as you know. Uh, The way that fan communities operate, the mail truck is now synonymous with omnibus. Which
0: was genius of us because uh, as a, you know, quasi-federal organization, they can't complain.
1: Yeah, right. Although, although when the Postal Service band came out with their smash hit single, Such Great Heights, they actually were confronted by the Postal Service,
0: who insisted— Who who said you can't call a band the Postal Service? Yeah,
1: well, what they did was they said, we'll let you— call your band the postal service if you do some ads for the postal service
0: they had there was some kind of friendly tit-for-tat well you know what we would do ads for the postal service if if that would let us sell mail truck shirts
1: we, we support the postal service so buy the mail truck shirt and precipitate whatever whatever confrontation we're going to have with the
0: the US postal service and let's get this ball rolling if you uh, missed out on the mail truck shirt the first time or want to see these new designs Just head to omnibusproject.com slash store and you can see not only shirts, but all the other mugs and hats and whatnot that uh, we have to offer. Thanks to our friends at Mediocrity for uh, putting out these two new shirt designs. They're going to be on sale for all of June, but then they won't be anymore. So act now.
1: Act now. Get those shirts. This technology was so, so incredible that it became the movies of its day. At a, at a certain point in the early 19th century, there was a rotunda in every European city uh, during the first sort of – 50- Would it be of the city? No, because this became uh, – you would uh, – people started painting canvases of everywhere, and it became a way that you could go to Egypt <laughs> – Armchair um, travel. Yeah, you could you could have the grand tour and never leave your home. And this was part of the advertisement, part of the thrill. Like you can go to the Americas. You can, and also this was right during the Napoleonic Wars, and it was prior to the the widespread pictorial depiction of the news. Um, newspapers didn't have. Uh, etchings of events or of people. And so major battles, uh, Trafalgar and Waterloo were depicted in panorama and you could stand there and see the whole scope of the battle. You could look all around and see, you know, if you think about Trafalgar, like it's a, it's a battle encompassing hundreds of ships. I mean, it's an amazing uh, epically scaled event. It'd be impossible to, contain it in a single photograph but you could have this immersive experience and it was like a newsreel but i mean if you think about the effort that goes into painting on canvas something that is like hundreds of yards around right um and 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 tall i mean it was a it was a thing that employed a lot of landscape painters and and the experience would be only as good as your painting um but it was it was a massively popular form of entertainment so much so that by 1813 the word panoramic which had never before appeared in print panoramic became the Became a a a description,
0: and now we use it to refer to the real landscape, not just of the artificial simulacrum.
1: What a panorama! I mean, we use it in film to pan from one side to the other. Is is a oh yeah pan is a you know a a derivation of this term. It was it was a new way of seeing, and this was a popular form of entertainment throughout the nineteenth century. In a lot of ways. Or it, uh, many of these structures, like the like the rotunda, remained in service as a as a, a panorama until eighteen sixty three. Honey, do you want to go see a panorama? Uh, it was a it was a big deal, and I wonder if they'd swap out the art the way they would swap out movies. They did it. They did it all the time.
0: Because yeah,
1: it was like come see the latest panorama. You get people
0: to go to a museum by putting in temporary exhibits.
1: Yeah, it's it's Jerusalem, and some of them were very popular. You know, you you would have one that you had. To, you had to keep it up because the lines were still around the block, um, but it was it was an enormous industry that really affected. It was it was like a popular form of travel and spectacle and and theater and movies. It was it kind it's, of
0: it's a little more like movies than theater in some ways, and there's no other there's nothing else at the time that comes close.
1: Well, so then gradually. Narration was introduced. Oh, okay. uh, there would be, you know, a, a kind of a tour guide that would say, "And over here, you see, um, you know, here's the Wailing Wall, or whatever." You know, somebody would be there to interpret what you were seeing because there was obviously demand for that. A, li- I, a live narrator, right? There couldn't a live narrator. Yeah. I should say that the rotunda still stands. In 1863, um, there, you know, this the popularity of this. Spectacle was starting to give way. Um, it was it, it had yet be uh, to be replaced by film, mm-hmm. but it was you know it was starting to seem a little bit too static, as we'll see in a second. Like other technologies followed behind, but the rotunda got converted into a church, the Notre Dame de France, a Catholic church in the center of London, and it still stands to this day. Uh, <laughs> you could you know you could go to, see
0: it today. It's deconsecrated. Churches that become movie theaters or museums or whatever, right? But this was the opposite, right? Way way. But one of
1: the uh, one of the evolutions of it became, uh, and this was this was popular in um, in the Americas because this was a popular way of of getting a chance to see the 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 epic scope of the United States. You know, all these um, these untrammeled. Vistas. I mean, that was
0: huge in art, too. Like, people would go to galleries in Europe and on the Eastern Seaboard just to see Bierstadt or whoever, who had just come back from the Rockies, and you're never going to believe the waterfall I saw. Right. And it really was the equivalent of, you know, Grandpa's vacation slides, except this really was the most eye-popping thing imaginable, because nobody ever seen the Rockies.
1: And that that was—I mean, given the expense and the scale of creating a panorama— it wasn't, uh, you know, in, in a way you don't think of a, of a beautiful oil painting as being easy, but it's not 300 yards around. Um, uh, so you had to really pick and choose like what you were going to represent as a panorama. Yeah. But in. What the, would be
0: the worst? What do you think would be the worst thing to have
1: as a panorama? The inside of my closet? <laughs>
0: What if just going to like the Sahara desert and it's just yeah. like, it's just two colors. It's just like a blue rectangle above a brown rectangle.
1: Well, except there was a certain amount of that because that would be such an exotic landscape. And to create a, a panoramic view of it, it was, an, there was enough realism to it in the eyes of the viewers. That, you are there. And they, uh, one of the technologies they developed was they could backlight some of the canvases so you actually got the sense of the glow of daylight oh. you know the it was an additional like like things in the foreground it became an additional dimension that could create you know light and shadow so so a, a like a grand vista of the sahara would have really connected with people
0: I mean, I can really see a version where you start doing like I don't know when the magic lantern was invented, but you really could start doing lighting and mm-hmm. like semi-photographic effects, right?
1: And some of these were were further iterations, and the the first one was the moving panorama, which uh, in about the eighteen twenties it was uh, like a new a new idea, which was to take a very very long canvas. And have it spooled on either side. So the audience now was not walking around this huge round building, but instead they were sitting in a chair and you were moving the panorama in front of them. So it's on a flat screen now. It's on a the flat screen. The curvature is gone. And what it really is, is uh, it's a Wes Anderson skit, right? It's um, it's what we now think of as, as a kind of like home, th- or like... Um, Cute and vaudevillian sort of form of theater, where the you know the actors all ra- race off stage left and the scene changes.
0: Yeah, except there's no actors, right? Not at first. It's one long slow scene change. Uh,
1: it's one. Lo- it's like a slideshow. So you could travel. It, it, except with at any this. given
0: instant, ninety nine percent of the image is what it was a second ago. You're you're getting you're gradually unveiling. an inch at a time on the right of the screen,
1: right? So there were two kinds. And one of them was this, um, like a journey up the Mississippi river where you're, where on stage you have some actors in a boat and you're moving it. It's like a rear projection in an old episode of dragnet. You're watching the, the, the shoreline go by as they're fake paddling in the boat and kind of telling the story of what they're seeing. And the other was more vignettes. So you'd have a backdrop and then the narrator would say, and now moving downstream or moving like, let's take a look over here. Let's go visit our friend at the shop. And the, you know, the panorama could move. And the advantage of this was that you could travel and you could take your panorama to, um, to far flung places and put on this show. It was like a lot of, uh, oh yeah, because
0: it'll be on it'll, it's on yeah. reels
1: or you know big big uh, it's like the torah. Do you basically. remember the
0: it's a big torah? Yeah. Do you remember the shiny happy People video? No, I think uh, there's some kind of a there's some kind of a thing on spindles going back and forth like that and some old guy on a bike is oh is doing, yeah. so there's some landscape moving behind the behind the band. I honestly think it's some kind of I remember seeing a, some kind of movie that had like a 19th century carnival thing in Vienna where you would you'd maybe get into a fake coach. And, you you know, you would choose, I want the beach or I want Venice or I want the Alps or whatever. And some guy would load in the spindle and, you know, maybe it was a, a bicycle pedal thing. I don't know. But, you know, you would pretend to be sitting in the coach while the landscape went by. And that was as good as a roller coaster then. And because of, uh, as
1: you were describing, like a lack of sophistication in the viewer, um, the effect of it the magic of it, you could squint your eyes and really put yourself in the seat and feel like I'm here. I'm actually, you know, I'm flying. Uh, and that, that technology then went out, you know, everybody was trying, uh, Barker's patent only lasted until 1803 or something like that. And then it became a thing that anybody could do. Uh, and so there were a lot of different kind of new innovations actually, Louis Daguerre who later invented the daguerreotype uh earlier invented the diorama which was a, a kind of a, a similar experience but one you could sort of step into that had a lot of other foregrounding elements um things that moved you know where you would you would feel like you were Actually, in a three dimensional space, because
0: there's different flats in front of the other flats, right? We're moving back and forth at right. different speeds. Ah, I see.
1: And so that was the diorama, and it was, and this was pre daguerreotype. But in the United States, it was a it was a real hot ticket, and the moving panorama because because uh, rather than build giant rotundas here, you know, we wanted to tour it around and show it in all these. Old camps and the most famous of them at the time was about the Mississippi River. It was not the the one that we're nom- that's nominally titles this episode, the panorama of the monumental grandeur of the Mississippi yeah, Valley. I was
0: hoping we would get to say that a lot. It is the longest omnibus title. It's it, and it's, it's like it's, a Fiona Apple episode.
1: It's nowhere near as long as the actual panorama, <laughs> but the longest panorama of the Mississippi River was was painted by a man by the name of John Bonvard. Uh this was a this was a canvas that was almost a half a mile long. Whoa. Twelve feet tall, eight hundred meters.
0: I think how long it would take to he, paint twenty five hundred feet of I mean I just did some murals on my daughter's wall at home and I mean I was dragging. My of scenes feet. from your life? Yeah. You mm-hmm. know here's uh it's it's kind of like here's me as a baby, mm-hmm. you know different miracles <laughs> I've performed. And your daughter asked you to do this, yeah? No, she she was upset. No, it's actually just uh, clouds and grass, and it's it's not unlike one of these. But you know, just as kind of a side project, it took me years to do. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to paint, and that was just four walls. I can't imagine trying to paint one that was half a mile long.
1: Yeah. So John Bonvard painted this half mile long uh, panorama of a trip down the Mississippi river and it was hugely popular. So popular that he, uh, he, he had it on display in Boston. We're talking about pre civil war, 1846. So popular that he took it on tour around the world. He gave a, a private screening of it to queen Victoria and it made him fantastically wealthy. This one, uh, this one incredible panorama of... Mis- because it was a way for people to travel to Mississippi and see this un... Most of them wouldn't see it. Right, see otherwise. this, like, at the time, what would have been an unspoiled
0: environment. It's a really smart business model for an artist who otherwise does not get a royalty for every set of eyes that walks by his painting in a gallery. This yeah. is, like, the only way an artist can get that kind of uh, revenue stream back then.
1: Yeah, and... and, and it, like it made him so much money that he went and built himself a mansion in Cold Spring Harbor in, uh, on Long Island, a famous mansion by the name of Glenada, uh, which was modeled on Windsor castle. He was this, <laughs> he was this kind of, this was the style of the time, right? Build, build yourself a, of an, an enormous folly. Uh, so he was a, he was like a figure of kind of of fun almost he built this mansion which which was popularly known as Benvort's Banvard's folly i guess but he was actually in like beefs with other panorama artists panorama artists oh boy uh, there were a couple of other panorama artists at the time one uh one by the name of John Rouson Smith and another
0: Richard Risley Carlisle would he like paint distracts into his panorama like hey that's that's uh Carlisle uh uh molesting a goat in that, the, over in the on the cliffs up there what's going on that would have been hilarious except it's so
1: difficult to paint these things <laughs> I think that they were just in the press like deriding one another's paintings and uh and saying you know oh that panorama looks like it was painted by a child and that one has you know has a uh, the the perspective screws up right, right about when he goes by St. Louis. Right. Really like uh like ripping on each other. So uh Bonvard, you know, was a celebrity of his day, and he actually ended up writing a book about his enormous Is panorama.
0: He, oh, I didn't know what you were gonna say there. And I know you've
1: I know you've written several books and you've got You've come up with some pretty snappy titles. Titles always a big
0: say. it's always a big issue of contention. You go back and forth with your editor and your publisher.
1: But I don't think that I I I don't th- with my familiarity of your work I can't think of a title that's quite as snappy as this one. Okay, uh, this is this is the the book slash pamphlet written about the panorama. Uh, it's called Description of Benvard's Panorama of the Mississippi River Painted on Three Miles of Canvas. False. exhibiting a view of country 1200 miles in length, extending from the mouth of the Missouri to the city of new Orleans being by far the largest picture ever executed by man. 1847. Do you think it says this on every ticket? Yeah, right. well, this was also the era of the kind of vaudevillian, pre-vaudevillian handbill.
0: Big posters, yeah.
1: And you, for you, the benefit of Mr. Kite. There are these wonderful posters of the exhibition for, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these panoramas that just have, have every word in the dictionary. None of these panoramas, or, or very, very few of them, considering that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, very few of them survive. And partly it is that it's intrinsically fragile to paint oil painting, to paint uh, in oil on a canvas, which you then roll up and unroll and it travels all over. It just cracked and flaked? It just cracked and
0: flaked. Huh.
1: And when when this technology fell out of favor, right, nobody wanted to keep, store and, and um, maintain these old... In, in a lot of cases, like kind of weirdly painted documents, and
0: they were just seen as like, "Where's the next thing? Toss this one." Yeah,
1: it's just like the Carson Show on videotape. Yeah. They uh, they they taped over them, or they cut them up, or they they put them on a fire. Uh, so very few of them survive. Uh, and there are a couple like there at the at the York Institute in Maine. Only very recently, uh, the the curator of this sort of archive discovered a giant panorama that had just been in storage for decades, uh, called the, uh, the grand moving panorama of pilgrim's progress. And that's got a whole story. It just came out. It was just sitting in an attic somewhere. And as he was sorting through boxes, he was like, what's this old thing?
0: And discovered this incredible panorama. I mean, that that suggests they did adaptations of other media. You know, it wasn't. It was no longer just a scene. It was also like here's the settings of Pilgrim's Progress in order, and there's going to be characters doing stuff.
1: And that's what happened. There's actually a fairly famous Mormon panorama. A Mormon Um, panorama. And it's
0: now. How much would you pay? It's
1: somewhere. You know, somewhere in Utah. Kind of not, uh, not not quite on display. I guess there's one on display in the Bedford or the New Bedford Whaling Museum called The Whaling Voyage Around the World. And as you're saying, right, it's now largely vignettes because you're you you're trying to tell a story across history. You want to have surprises and and twists and and developments. You want to have an arc. Which brings us to the panorama of the monumental grandeur of
0: the Mississippi Valley, of a modern major general, of the ladies of the harem of the court of King Karakoto.
1: <laughs> now, this was not a panorama that was anywhere near the scale and scope of uh, of Bonvard's panorama but it was a um, it was a vignette based one and it was actually it was painted by a by a painter by the name of John J Egan but it was commissioned by a kind of amateur Pennsylvania archaeologist by the name of Montreville Wilson Dickinson
0: wow Right, seems like the fictional. He seems like an Agatha Christie character. Yeah,
1: Montraville, and this was a period where amateur archaeologists. Uh, who, oh sure, who were basically like grave robbers.
0: They loved the mound builders. They right?
1: did, and they were out digging up mounds and collecting artifacts, taking them back to uh, to their home in Philadelphia, and you know, displaying them as part of their exotic menagerie. And Dickinson was one of these characters, and he'd made several trips up the Mississippi River Valley uh, in the, you know, in the 1830s and 40s on these artifact gathering exhibitions. But of course, this was still the frontier, really pre-major um, influx of, of people from the East. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these environments were, were unspoiled. And he was there to spoil them, but <laughs> he he commissioned this panorama because he wanted to do a speaking tour and describe what had happened with uh,
0: with a visual. It's his PowerPoint,
1: right? And so he had Egan paint it, and it was it ended up having twenty five different scenes. It was about three hundred and fifty feet long, seven and a half feet tall, and it was a it was a moving panorama, and he would take this panorama with him on tour and describe, you know, let's go to the next slide. It was a PowerPoint demonstration. And then the next slide would come and he would say, here you see the mound that I excavated.
0: Uh, and is it is it kind of geographic? Is, it, is it, Does it seem like it's moving along a single riverfront view and then but new things keep popping into view? It does. Well, so
1: the panorama of the monumental grandeur of the Mississippi Valley actually is uh, one of the few extant and it was uh after its grand tour, it was sort of passed down through the Dickinson family and ended up, you know, in the in a corner somewhere. They donated donated it to the Philadelphia Museum.
0: You don't think every Christmas Eve they got it out and did a trip yeah, down maybe, the Mississippi? Maybe. Well, Everybody got be, liquored up and went down the
1: Mississippi. From the condition of it, it looked like they used it as a drop cloth. Uh, but <laughs> oh, it, it's all beat up. Yeah, it ended up it ended up in Pennsylvania for a long time, and then it was loaned to the St. Louis Art Museum as part of a centennial of you know Lewis and Clark or the Mississippi. Yeah, what, what
0: better spot for a Mississippi exploration
1: uh, artifact? And they discovered that this that it had fallen into incredible disrepair. And they began a, a and and if you see it, it just looks like what you would imagine cracked and crumbled, painted, fallen off. Uh, but they began a restoration so much so that the that the museum in Pennsylvania ended up just sort of gifting it to the St. Louis art museum and they've been they've been restoring it for many, many years. and now it's almost completely restored. There are only a few panels left that are in in its ragged
0: shape. Do they do a little show? Can you go and see it or not? So it's still very fragile,
1: too fragile to display in its original kind of sit in your chair while a, while a, a a fake Dickinson, you know, talks about his, his grave robbing. What's crazy about it is that almost every one of the 25 vignettes features some Native American, uh, Exploit. And the thing is that it's one thing to do a panorama of the of the Battle of Trafalgar, but it's another thing to have human figures doing human things because they're not. I mean The scale's gonna be hard, right? Well, and John Egan's not a great painter. Oh uh-huh. you know, he's not one of the he's not Cezanne. He's um it's cartoon. <laughs> and so you have all these scenes where uh, where American Indians with big headdresses are throwing their tomahawks or uh, chasing around, you know,
0: big battles. But they look like goofy Henry Darger
1: kind of. They're just, they're what you would expect. They're a kind of, um, yeah, painted by a guy who's like, here. here's a burial mound and a couple of uh, chiefs and at one point there's a there actually an excavation of a burial mound is depicted and it shows dickinson uh there with several slaves uh, digging in the hill so each one of the 25 vignettes is sort of not very good but the <laughs> experience of watching it
0: slavery aside it's not very good
1: yeah the the experience of seeing it as a as a traveling show must have been
0: pretty fantastic um it's like a comic strip. It's like a comic strip. You're seeing a big, a big, big, big comic strip. In fact, I would like to see just a big, a, a giant high and lowest blown up to this scale. Yeah, right.
1: Uh, with all, I mean, it's a high and lowest that encompasses like a whole month's worth of shows. Sure. So the panorama persisted as a form of mass entertainment even into the era of film. Some of the <laughs> first, uh, some of the first public showings of the new technology of moving pictures actually happened within the context of a panorama show. Um, so that they would, you know, they would broadcast moving pictures either as a component of this moving panorama or as a like, and now you're not going to believe what we have for you you know, like, like a traveling variety show.
0: Maybe you can't tempt people to go to the new technology, but you can, you can show it to them while they're getting a big oil painting of the, mississippi which is what they want and
1: then even into the uh, the 20th century into the 1920s it it gradually became kitsch but a kind of thing that you would do with the family you'd you know on a sunday you'd go like let's go down to the panorama it's like the the buffalo bill uh it's kind of like a like an old west thing and we see it now recapitulated in the work of of uh all the, it it seems like a very indie rock thing now, right? To have a a music video or well, yeah. so it's very Wes Andersony. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, the panorama is a is part of a lot of natural history museums and Disney. Like it's still a technology that manages
0: to impress and overwhelm. Uh, I mean, it's just, there's something about seeing an oil painting where you can't believe someone did it. You know, you can't believe that somebody reproduced the illusion of life, as you say, using these just little dots, of, dots and smears of pigment. And you're just admiring the trick. Uh, and I guess you add to that... The spectacle of the of size, or you know, a, a story. Maybe there were sound effects. You think there were sound effects? Oh, there was
1: music. Uh, you know, later on, it was it was like the proto silent movie where you had you had the little orchestra in the pit and and the narrator. It really does make
0: it seem like movies were inevitable. You know, the movie camera was just um, you know people had been wanting to do it. Yeah. For for a century.
1: It's a form of storytelling that we think of as being invented by film, but it was really over, you know, a century and
0: a half old. That's what I think every time I go to the movies, I'm like, this would be a really good panorama. And that concludes the panorama of the monumental grandeur of the Mississippi Valley. Entry 895.nu2406. Certificate number 14751 in the omnibus. Futurelings, we are, uh, once again, coming to you from the early 21st century, where, as a result of our particular failings and foibles as a people, we were still on social media. Uh, contemporary followers could uh, could keep up with us at Omnibus Project. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. You could find John via his uh, Patreon. You could—I uh, mean, the best way to support the show in this era was with our Patreon, patreoncom omnibusproject I want to mention that now because uh, one of the more elaborate perks offered to generous donors is they get to suggest a topic for the show. And in fact,
1: The Panorama of the Monumental Grandeur of the Mississippi Valley was suggested by uh, one of our listeners who works in the St. Louis Art Museum. Is yeah, that
0: right? Br- uh, Bridget suggested the topic because for many years she, uh, what, she was writing grants, I think? I don't want to make things up about writing grants
1: to Bridget. support the conservation of the of the.
0: the yes, painting? she was a grant writer for the St. Louis Art Museum from 2008 and 2016, and as a result, she was a big part of getting the panorama
1: restored. You can see this panorama online. They have done a like a comprehensive pan across it. It's a you know it's a YouTube video that's. Ten minutes long. So if you
0: want to totally defeat the purpose of all the spectacle by watching it on your phone. Yeah, right. It's one thing I will not understand, I think, ever about Gen Z is just watching stuff on a little tiny screen. My son, not as good. My son will watch anything. He's watching Jurassic Park on a little tiny postage stamp screen. Why would you do it? I didn't get it. Uh, so thank you, Bridget, for suggesting that topic. And, and that for, was a
1: Patreon benefit. Uh,
0: that's right. That, that Bridget took advantage by of. By giving up the Washing Bear tier. If I, if I have that right. Yeah, the Washing Bear tier introduces all of the perks of the Lobster Person, Sentient Aspen Tree Colony, and Robot Alien Explorer tiers, but adds the ability to suggest an omnibus entry topic of your choice. In this case, a monumental panorama. She got the longest show title in the whole shebang. Very excited. Unless, I, I don't, I don't mean that to be a challenge, but I guess somebody could... Somebody could try to beat her at that point. It's
1: got to be legit. You can't just come can't, up with some. You long. can't
0: just be like, Fiona Apple records should be... A, right. Uh, you uh, could uh, email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You could send us physical artifacts to our P.O. Box, Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I'm looking at Andrew, uh, who sent us a... Um, I just read this email earlier in the week who sent us an update on what's going on in the world of Pokemon in case you were curious just updating us on a lot of the current uh, retail situations trading card situation all the latest Uh, and in addition to that or I guess supplementing that he sent us uh, a couple Pokemon cards
1: oh how exciting for my daughter
0: I get a mint condition Pidgey, who apparently we have mentioned on Omnibus. Has Pidgey been on Omnibus?
1: I wouldn't remember.
0: And yours has a yours has a disclaimer about um the male gaze and underage female characters, John. I don't I'm glad you got that one instead of me. Okay. You get a Nessa trainer from okay. the newest generation of Pokemons. And I kind of want to open it and see what what the controversy is here. Don't do it. Is it, uh, it's unopened. It's Minton box.
1: My daughter continues to play Pokemon, I think, without fully understanding what's happening. <laughs> Does she know the rules?
0: I don't think so. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, Nessa, Nessa's wearing um, a swimsuit that leads very little to the imagination.
1: Is she some kind of monster or
0: creature? No, she's just a, a big-eyed... She's a trainer. She's not one of the oh, titular see. pocket monsters.
1: Oh, I'd say that bikini wear or that outfit leaves a lot to the imagination. It's I guess short, that's the difference not...
0: between us. She yes. looks like a beach volleyball player. She does. There the are certain volleyball. there are certain occasions for which that is an appropriate outfit. Thank you, Andrew, for keeping us up to speed on all things Pokemon. If you could continue to inform us every month every month or, uh, or so about the latest, we would we'd really appreciate that. And if you would like to discuss uh, Pokemon wear or really any other topic, you can do so with the other Futurelings. Uh, You can find them uh, on the Facebook community. Uh, They have some kind of sub-discord under John's Gary's Van Discord. There's a subreddit. Wherever finer internet nerds are sold.
1: Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But... If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.